Well, hello, my name is Gage Henry. If we have not had the chance to meet, I just want to say welcome to everybody joining us online. Welcome to Birmingham. Love that crew there. And you know what, today, I got to be honest, this was, uh, it was a great prayer that Miles just prayed because I have never gotten up here in the day that I get up here. I felt more spiritual attack. Like if, like I had in my notes, this is funny, because I had in my notes to say to all of you that if you are here today, and you feel extremely desperate, that probably means that you belong here today. That for some reason, I wrote that in my notes, and then I felt it this morning. I've never felt such an attack on my joy, an attack on my delight and who God is. And I just say that because I believe maybe that means that God has something he specifically wants to say to you through his word. And so as we get into this, last week was the reminder for me of why we do what we do. Baptism Sunday, were any of y'all there at Baptism Sunday last week? It was uh, just a few of them over here, but it was absolutely unbelievable to watch what God can do when somebody is willing to be honest with their story. And I watched as power was unleashed in this room like I have never seen before as a girl with Down syndrome articulates her faith better than most of this room. And as you watch people drive down from Birmingham to participate and just get dunked, And there was this story that I felt like was so powerful that so much so that everybody, as soon as he was done talking, stood up in an applause, not to him, but to Jesus. And it was this man named Stephen. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. And it's interesting is because Stephen, he bears the name of the first martyr of the church, which the name Stephen means victor's crown. And it was that moment where Stephen looked up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing there. And he receives, it's almost like Stephen receives his crown as he goes into heaven. And I watched as as Stephen here in this church goes underwater and as he comes back out and his face is beaming, it's like he received his victor's crown. But the only thing lit up in this entire room is what's on the back wall. Jesus wins. It was like I had this picture of Stephen going under and I look up and I see that Jesus wins. And that is the story that so many of us are invited into. And I hope that the miraculous of God never becomes mundane to us. I hope that God transforming lives never gets old. And so we're going to look at today the story of the man who actually is the responsible one for the death of Stephen. So if you need a title, it's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul. Go ahead and tell your neighbor, let's get ready. Okay, tell the neighbor you ignored, let's really get ready. It's the, it's the Apostle Paul. We got to make sure we do this story justice. And if you don't know this story, we're going to intro the character we're going to read about for the rest of this series. This is potentially the most significant conversion in the early church because the Apostle Paul is the one who will take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. And so for me, I've looked at this and I've heard this story for years and years and years. And I was asking God, where does this intersect with our lives today? Where does this intersect with our stories as a part of this church? And here's the tension that I felt like God gave me. I think that most of us think that we can live a life of faith in isolation. Meaning that we think it's possible for me to have faith in Jesus and it just be between me and Jesus. We think it's possible for us to have this privatized, individualized faith, but here's the reality. I'm watching the church tear apart at the seams because so many people are hyper-individualistic in their faith. And I'm watching as what happens in the story of the apostle Paul is not necessarily this moment we all of a sudden gets Jesus. It's actually about how Jesus uses people because Jesus only directly says one thing to Paul. 
I've read this story my whole life, and I hope for you, you'll have fresh eyes as we encounter the story together today, because I know that as you read this story, you immediately think of a bunch of things about salvation. So let me just finish with this. My plan and my vision for today is that we would be unified in Christ together. We'd be unified in spirit, unified in spirit with other believers in this room. And ultimately, what I don't want to happen is that when August comes and everything is crazy and football season is here and there's excitement and there's joy and there's so much passion of all the energy going on, I don't want you to lose your first love. Because I know that when everything gets crazy, the first thing to go is time alone with God and time with believers. First thing to go in your schedule. And we're going to see how God actually orchestrated this whole thing to be a spiritual family to belong to. So if you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up in Birmingham, hold it up online, even if you're by yourself, hold it up. Okay, we're going to do a good old-fashioned single-person Bible drill for my people, okay? The reason why is because summer is the time where romances end. It's almost the end of summer. The summer romance is about to end. So if you are single, leave it up. If you're single in this room, you may leave your Bible up, take a look around, take a look around in Birmingham real quick. I am the college pastor, so this is okay. Everybody turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Let's go. Anybody have that heartbreaking middle school relationship in, you thought your life was over, summer, you know what I'm talking about, and your life was better when it ended? Yeah. Summer romances. Okay, how am I going to transition to the Apostle Paul? I don't know, but here we go. If you're in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, if you're there, say, I'm there. This is the word of God. Meanwhile... Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes... He could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument 
to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. It's powerful. This is the conversion story that led to the world being reached. This is the conversion story that led to 13 letters being written in your New Testament by this man. And I believe it all stems from their encounter that he has here with Jesus on this road and what happens through a man named Ananias. So we're going to walk through it. So if you want to go back to verse 1 at the top, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats. So he's literally breathing like a war horse coming for battle. He is completely hardened by this passion to end the movement that is known as the way. The murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Okay, so you need to understand this. How did Christianity spread? Think about this. All these people who were Jews now became Christians, but they went back to their synagogues because that's where their life was. Think about as if you're a Christian in this room, you know what I'm talking about. The moment where you met Christ and all of a sudden everything about your life had to change. But what happened is all these Christians are now in the synagogues. It's why Hebrews is actually written to make sure that these newfound Christians could detach themselves from the traditions of their former life. And the way of walking in Judaism was known as halaha. It's a fun word to say, halaha. And it meant that you were walking in the way of the law of Moses. But now there's these new Christians who are followers of the way, meaning Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And so what happens is, is he's called to go to these areas. Saul is going to persecute these Christians in Damascus, which is 150 miles away from Jerusalem, and he's supposed to get rid of them from the synagogues. Verse 3, and as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is so interesting to me because if you're Saul, what's your first response? No, I'm not. Maybe Stephen, maybe Philip, maybe another Christian. I'm not persecuting you. And second, I think that his teaching from his teacher Gamaliel from earlier in the story is coming to mind. And if you weren't here, you need to remember what happened is, is there's this moment where the apostles are standing before the Sanhedrin. And all the people in the Sanhedrin want to kill the apostles. They were cut to the heart with rage. But this teacher named Gamaliel stands up and he says, guys, if they are right, we are fighting God. And now here, Saul is going to get rid of these newfound Christians. And a light is flashed around him. And he's thinking to himself, oh my goodness, he was right. I've been fighting God. And so what happens in this situation to me is arguably where Paul gets 
his most important theological discussion. The thing that Paul consistently comes back to over and over and over again in all of his letters is actually found right here. And it's this phrase I'm going to put on the screen. It's unity with Christ. Unity with Christ. And if you need to know what this means, it's two things. It's being undivided in heart with God and being unified in spirit with other believers. This is what Paul is so obsessed with. He says in Christ over and over and over again, he focuses on the body of Christ. His most common metaphor he uses is the family of God. And so what these things mean, number one, undivided in heart with God, what does that mean? It means that there is a oneness with Christians in your spirit to where you know without a shadow of a doubt that your reference points for everything in your life, everything you believe and all the aspects of your lifestyle is found in one person, Jesus. It means that you are so unified and undivided in what you believe that there's this inward prompting in you that's known as the Holy Spirit. There's a voice in you that's telling you what to do. It's leading you in your decisions. And what I've seen in my life is that if I'm undivided in heart with God, what ends up happening is all of a sudden all the activities of my life begin infused with life and light and hope and joy. And so what happens is, is that you can live not as this frantic, faithful person, which I think that's most of us, if we're really honest. It's like you're torn between duty and delight. It's like, as a Christian, that's how I feel right now. It's like, I know I'm supposed to stand up here, but also I'm supposed to delight in God. What am I supposed to do here? And there is a unity that comes in your spirit with Christ when you know the language of your shepherd, when you know his voice, when you're faced with a decision and you're like, I know that God wants me to do this. There's this obedient stream that can let you live with this undivided heart and attention and focus to Jesus. But also, number two, you're unified with other believers. This is what's so interesting is that I believe Jesus is reaching back to what he said in Matthew 25. And if you remember what he said, he said, whatever you do to the least of these, you also do to me. And whatever you don't do for the least of these, you also don't do for me. See, what Jesus is saying right here to Paul in one sentence is that every single stone that was hurled at Stephen was hurled at me. And every ounce of pain that Stephen felt I felt. You need to know today that if you are a Christian in this room, or you have friends that are Christians in this room, every single sin committed against a Christian is a, co a commitment against Jesus. And this is the good news though, every single attack on your life, Jesus feels with you. That's what it means to be unified with other believers. And to know right here, Paul is saying something so powerful. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Okay, I got to stop here. So if Christianity is all about this individual personal relationship that you are supposed to have with God, which is true, if it's all about that, and it's all about trying to get individuals saved and one day into heaven, then this is the moment that every one of us dreams about. Who are you, Lord? And every single one of us knows exactly what Jesus is supposed to say right here. He's supposed to say, Oh man, who are you, Lord? Oh man, your father in heaven. He loved you so much that he sent me to die in your place. Believe in me, you will have eternal life, everlasting life, and will live in heaven forever. And this is the moment, this is Jesus showing up on a road. Think about the moment that you have with this light emanating presence, the glory, the holiness of God, knocking this man to his feet. He's on his knees and he asks the question, who are you, Lord? 
Jesus, this is your moment. What does he say? Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. I mean, what a letdown. I mean, Jesus, you could have said anything. He had it teed up perfectly. He's on his knees. He's asking for the three points of prayer. This is the moment, Jesus. And what's so fascinating to me, this is the last thing that Jesus directly says to Paul. Now get up, go into the city, and there you will be told what you must do. There. Because I believe that the journey that Jesus is taking Paul on is the journey that he does with us. And that journey requires people. Your faith journey requires people. In other words, there's no such thing as an independent Christian. It means there's, there's no such thing for you to just be this individualized, hyper-individualistic faith person. This is rigged to be absolutely relational with other people. And so my question and what I've been thinking about all week, what if the confusion that you are facing in your life is directly connected to your isolation from people? What if the thing that you've been begging God to give you, this moment of clarity, of vision, you've been asking God to answer a specific prayer, what if that answer will come after you get up and you go and you sit across the table from another believer and get honest? What if God actually wants to speak to you through other people, his body? Because what happens with Paul? We already read it. Paul spins three days in the dark. But his moment of clarity comes when Ananias lays his hand on him. He's a person, a member of the church. And so I love this because he says, get up and go to the city. But you know who's waiting for him there? It's not Jesus. Jesus isn't there in the city when he arrives. It's not this thunderous moment of holiness. It's a man named Ananias in the house of Judas on Straight Street. Isn't that interesting? And I think for a lot of us, the whole conversation for me is centered around this idea that Jesus saves people by using people. That's what the church is. That we're invited into the story and we get to play a part in the story and it's this beautiful thing. And I think that a lot of us are waiting on a, we're waiting on a word from God neglecting his people right in front of us. We're waiting on God to speak to us. Give me this revelation. And yes, you need alone time with God 100%. All I'm saying is sometimes we overvalue our own opinion. And we undervalue the opinions of those who know Christ and know us best. What if the person across the table from you, your mom, your spouse, your friend, who's telling you the honest truth is truth from God that you've been waiting for. He gets up first, right? And I love this. Can we just go ahead and skip to verse eight? I have other things I wanted to say, but this is too good. Saul gets up from the ground and when he opens his eyes, he could see nothing. In other words, he couldn't even do the very thing that Jesus asked him to do. He gets up and is like, okay, I'm going to go to the city. Blindness. And what happens? It says in verse 9, or the end of verse 8, it says, so they led him by the hand into Damascus. He couldn't even do the thing that Jesus was asking him to do without help. Why do you think you're different? You know what discipleship is? For many of you in this room, it's just getting up and letting someone grab your hand and take you to the word. That's simple. And so let me just ask you a question right here. Okay, think about this. What if Paul just intellectually agreed with the truth that Jesus was Lord? I think a lot of us in this room, you come to this, this stage or you come to this, this room 
and you hear from this stage truth that you resonate with, but you never respond or do anything with it, what if you only intellectually agree transformation won't come? And so what happens is there's a spiritual moment where he intellectually agreed. But what if Paul never gets up and goes anywhere? Now, I don't want to speculate, but I think that God would have used somebody else, potentially. He did that with Esther. He told that to Esther. And so what I'm trying to say is maybe some of us in this room, you continue to resonate with messages instead of responding to the message. There is a person who wants a relationship with you. There's a God who is real. There's a, a presence here that you're like, whoa, God is doing something in this room. What is that? It's the body of Christ. You come to church to meet with Jesus. But sometimes Jesus is through the eyes of someone else. And so Saul gets up from the ground. He goes and opens his eyes. He could not see anything, which is a whole thing. Because in the, room, in the moment right there, you know, there was these other guys who couldn't see what was happening. It means that sometimes you can be experiencing God and the person next to you doesn't even see God at all. But he gets up, opens his eyes. He could see nothing. They led him out by the hand into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. And so um, just kind of facetiously, uh, just to all of you, I got a new respect for anybody in this room right now who you're like, all I did was get up. Like, I literally don't want to be here. Like, I got up and someone else dragged me here. If you got drugged to church today, congratulations, you're in the Bible. This is great. But I love that for three days he was blind, not because he was blind, but because he was like Jesus. And this is an obvious pullback to the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, which means that you cannot have the resurrection of your life without the death of your old life. That there's a blindness to all of us until we come into the saving faith and seeing Jesus for who he really is. You know the best part about following Jesus? It's almost like the best illustration I can give you. It's like if you ever stared into the sun accidentally, like you were playing sports or something, and you like looked up at the sun for just too long or a bright light for too long, and then you tried to look around at your life, but all you saw was the shadow of the sun. It's like you, you looked and saw something so bright and so glorious that now when you looked around, all you could see was that thing. I think that's what happens to so many of us when we come to know Jesus. And I could say it a bunch of other ways, but I think C.S. Lewis is just a lot smarter than me, so I'm just going to put him on the screen. He says it this way. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. So what that means is that when you become a Christian, you go from being spiritually blind to now you have spiritual sight. You have vision. It means you see Jesus clearly. It's not just I'll never be the same. I'll never see the same. Because of Jesus, now every aspect of my life is infused with light. And now I'm unified with him. I'm following his voice. I'm listening to what he wants me to do. And this is what happens to Paul. Jesus is the prize. And Jesus is the goal of everything. So let me just ask you a question. If that's true about you, if you're a Christian in this room, let me just ask you a few questions. Number one, what does it mean for your habits this year? What does it mean for your schedule? What does it mean for the relationships that you invest in? What does it mean for your career and all your ambitions and all the things you want to accomplish in this life? What does it mean for Jesus to be infused in all of that? Him be the one who's bringing light to all of it. Maybe that will be the answer of whether or not you wreck your faith this year, you ruin your marriage this year, you walk away from church. How he infuses light into everything that you do. You know, even this morning, this is so crazy. This morning in our production meeting, 
as a guy who says, oh, I got a story, it's not that great, begins to tell us this story about him in Uganda. In Uganda, he has this lady that he's been praying for. They've been seeing this lady. She is physically blind, cannot see. Comes to the knowledge of the fact that her son is being loved on by this group of people, this church, these missionaries, and asks them why. And they tell this blind woman all about Jesus. And this blind woman ends up giving her life to Jesus. And she's physically blind, but now she spiritually can see. And one of the, the girls on the team was so convicted and was amazed at what was happening that she was like, we should go pray for her to be able to physically see. And so they go back eight hours later after it happens, and the girl just lays her hand on the eyes of this woman and begins to pray in Jesus' name. She now spiritually sees, but help her physically see. And lifts off her hand, and she can see. That was this morning. I was like, that's a pretty good story you should share for our pre-meetings. Why am I saying this? It's because God can change everything about your story once you see him clearly. He can change everything. And he's a God of miracles. So I've been asking God all week to give me like, what does this mean for our spiritual family? Because we say that church is about people. It's not a place. We say it's not a service that you attend. It's a spiritual family to belong to. So God, what do you want me to say to this group of people who are going to be listening to me on Sunday? And I feel like he gave me a few things, but I do have to make sure I make this anecdote that Ananias is incredible, but we already talked about the entire perspective of Ananias in this story in the Here I Am series. And I actually had to cut like a whole second sermon that I kind of developed about Ananias and how we're all supposed to be the person in the city that's waiting when Jesus sends people our way. And I was really fired up about it, but I had to cut it. So If you want to listen to that sermon, it's back in the Here I Am series all about Ananias. So the first point, though, for today, that I believe God is calling us as a church to be spiritually engaged and live as a family is this, to bear scars publicly. I'm going to explain what this means. It feels so weird to say it out loud, but I feel like God gave it to me based on his word. Verse 15 It says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, if you've been in the series with us at all, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, how is it that every time I am supposed to preach, I end up having to talk about suffering? Every single time I've been up here the last few times, I've had to talk about suffering, but it led me to this thought, what is my role as a pastor? Like, is it I'm supposed to find the right thing to say? And it was like, actually, I don't think that's it. I think it's how I bear my scars obediently. And what I mean by that is I think that the better way for me to pastor you guys is for me to openly bear my scars. I'm like, why has it been painful? And I know you don't know my story, but there's Mom has cancer, and there's other things. I know people have cancer in this room, and I have my face bashed in on a mission trip, and I have 30 screws in my face, and the past few months. And I believe that's not just my call. That's your call. Jesus, right here, is calling Paul into a relationship where suffering is the expectation. But I want you to think about it this way. Okay, think about Ananias' perspective. Ananias is thinking about this guy who's been harassing the Christians, who's been arresting the Christians. We've heard the reports about this guy named Saul. You know what God sees? 
God sees the guy who is an expert in the Old Testament law. He sees a guy who is brilliant in mind and thought. He sees a guy who grew up in, the, in Tarsus and knows Greek language. He sees a guy who is a Roman citizen, who knows the road systems. He sees a guy who understands the Hellenistic culture of his day. See, what most of us see as a problem, God sees as potential. See, what made Saul such an enemy of Christ becomes his weapon for Christ. And I think so many of us get stuck seeing people as a problem instead of seeing people as God sees them with all of their potential. You know what Baptism Sunday is? It's a public displaying of scars. It's people publicly getting on stage and saying, this is who I used to be. I used to be an atheist who hated God. And now me trying to disprove God led me to God. It means I watch every time. I mean, you know this is true. Who develops the rehab centers? It's the recovering alcoholics. Who is the one who starts all the initiatives for cancer? It's the person who's fighting breast cancer. Who is the one who leads people to Jesus? It's probably the one who was furthest away from him to start. And so many of us miss out on all the power of what God wants to do in and through our lives and what we can witness because we judge people as a problem instead of see what God sees in them. And so my whole point I'm trying to make, again, bear scars publicly is this. Maybe your hidden scars are the prep work for someone else's healing. And if you bear them publicly, it will lead to your healing and someone else's freedom. Maybe your hidden scars are the prep work for the healing that God wants to do in someone else. Maybe the thing that you are fighting right now is what God wants to unleash as a vision of hope for someone else's future. And here's the best news of it all. Being in a body of church, being a body of Christ, means you don't have to bear them alone. It means we get to bear all these scars together. Verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. The greatest conversion in the history of the church was built on suffering. And I don't even have to explain this to you guys. You know, what are the moments where God was most closest to you? What were the moments? You could say, yes, it was the boat ride at sunset. It was awesome. Or you could say, yes, if you're me, that bite of bluebell ice cream just always hits different. And God is so close. But here's what I do know. Here's what I really know. It was when you were most hurt. It was when the relationship ended that you thought would end at the altar. It's when your dad gave you the news about the diagnosis. It's when your friend passed away unexpectedly. It's when you got the call. God was so close. And if you think back to those moments where God is so close to you, I can almost guarantee you that there was a person on the other side of that pain who was being Jesus to you. Did you know that the, the greatest moments of pain in my life were also the moments where I felt most loved by my church? Y'all, I have soup that I ate that was salty with my tears because someone brought me a meal so my wife didn't have to make one as she watched a toddler, a newborn, and me with a broken face right out of surgery. We get to bear these scars together. What a vision of church. 
we get the invitation from Jesus to suffer, to bring healing to a world that's suffering? Let's bear those scars publicly together. And the last point is this. Speak life privately. Speak life privately. And this is a, a strange phrase. But I think that the interactions that we give other people in the secret places and the words that you give, verses and visions towards other people could be the way that they are delivered from darkness. You know, what's interesting to me is uh, during that whole accident and everything that happened, um, before the accident happened, there was actually something that I kept feeling. There's a lie. I don't know what your lie is. I can tell you what my lie is. I can't tell you what's in your head. But the lie that I was starting to believe a little bit is that I'm not good at this. Like, I felt insecure every time I would stand in front of you. Like, I started to believe that, man, I know that's, that's Miles' gift. I, I don't really think that this is my gift. I think that I'm supposed to encourage people one-on-one. I think I'm supposed to lead at a church, but I don't think I'm supposed to do this. And then the accident happens where, if, again, if you don't know this story, basically I hit uh, going 30 miles an hour and I broke most of the bones in my face and my whole jaw was kind of wired shut for a little bit and I've had some issues even being able to speak because my top lip is still numb. And, and I got this word from a member of our prayer team who said, I had a, a vision last night of you. I had a dream about you last night. And here's the words that she spoke to me. And this was in a broke moment of brokenness. This was in a moment of pain. And she spoke and said this, maybe where the enemy is attacking you, your mouth, is where God wants to take the most ground through you. She said, I had a vision from God that the enemy is trying to shut you up because you actually do have something to say. It is nothing about you. It's all about Jesus. And she said, there's a verse on my heart that I just wanted to read to you and send to you. And this is the verse that she sent. It's Acts 18 and it's about Paul. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. And I read that the first time and she's like, do not be silent. Because if you don't know my story, this is the third time I've broken my mouth. And each time was when I feel like a moment where God was trying to show me something personal and spiritual and he was unleashing something new in me. This is when I first got my first job in ministry, broke my jaw. First Bible study I was ever a part of, broke my jaw. Here I am on a mission trip, right before the building opens, broke my jaw. And she's like, how many times does the enemy have to attack the thing that maybe God wants to use in you? And so the reason why I'm saying that is for all of you in this room, maybe the thing that's most insecure in you, maybe the thing that you feel like the enemy is attacking you through is the thing that God wants to use in you. It might not be your mouth, but it might be a diagnosis. It might be a sickness. It might be the part of you that when you look in the mirror, you don't like, but it's the part that God is gonna continue to use. We are from weakness to strength as Christians. God has made strong in our weaknesses. And that word changed everything because I noticed something that stood out to me. Because I have many people in this city, Jesus is saying to Paul, I am with you, but the strength in you comes from the people in the city. And I gotta tell you today, in Auburn, Alabama, and we got people in the city, 
We got people in this city. We got prayer warriors on their knees. You wanna know why it feels so different whenever you come to this church and you stand in this room and you feel God's presence? It's not because of what I'm doing up here. It's not because of my gifting or Miles' gifting or the person on stage leading. It's because God is here. You know why? Because people are on their knees. And there is a group of people who are saying, we are the people in this city. Auburn is gonna look different. We're gonna look different. Birmingham is gonna look different because we got people in this city. Your strength comes from the people and God is with you in it. And that reminder to me, once again, it means that your words that you speak in private mean so much. And so I wanna finish the story. I'm gonna read all these verses and I'm gonna try to take us into what this means spiritually. But verse 17 says, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. He placed his hands on Saul and said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Some of you need to spiritually see, but I wanna take you into the moment where God built the family. Why was Paul so obsessed with family when he didn't even have one? It's because of this moment right here. Think about this, this 30 year old man, completely humiliated his entire life, he worked so hard. He knew all the right laws. He knew all the stuff. He studied under the, the greatest teacher. He left his family and where they were from. He devoted his entire life to this vision of his life. And now all of a sudden on a road, everything is falling apart in front of his eyes. And he's realizing, I've been fighting against God this whole time. And then for three days, he's in darkness. He's stuck with his own thoughts, every sin, every moment, every decision everything that he had done before, all of a sudden washing over him for those three days, realizing all that he had done. And the only thing he heard from Jesus was, you're about to find out. Someone's gonna tell you what you must do. And I just like to think that, man, there's probably some fear there. There's probably some anxiety there. What is he gonna say? What have I done? And notice, after that moment, what are the first words that he hears from another human being? It's in verse 17, brother Saul. I was so unexpectedly moved by those words this week. The word brother here is Adelphos. It means unified womb. It means we're from the same spirit. See, I think Paul was so obsessed with family because this is the moment where he entered one. And I just wanna say, to some of you in this room who are living in darkness. You've been stuck with the weight of your guilt. You just need to hear these words. Brother, I see you. Be filled again with the Spirit. You've been wracked with anxiety and fear and worry about what you're supposed to do next in your life. You just need to hear these words. Sister, I see you. Be a part of this family. Be filled with the Holy Spirit again. I think so many of us don't realize that what Jesus wants to do in our lives is lay his hand on our shoulder through the voice of another person and say, I'm with you, I'm with you. And so today I just wanna end with verse 18. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again, he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So this is all of our opportunities to respond to Jesus. 
Some of you in this room, you've never seen what I'm describing. You've never seen what it means to let Jesus infuse every aspect of your life. You've never even seen him clearly. He's the son of God. He's the one who all of this is for. He's one worth your life. Some of you need to get up and be baptized like last week. And maybe the, the, the challenging step for you is to be bold enough and humble enough to come down here even and be like, I need help. Help me see. I wanna know this God you keep talking about. And so for all of us in this room, we're gonna go into our time of communion right now. You can go ahead and grab your sets because I love that the way that the family receives this moment is they eat food together and regain their strength. You are at church today for your strength to be gathered and regained as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus. If you don't have one, just hold up your hand, whatever room you're in, hold up your hand. I want us to try as best we can to keep this moment as spiritual as possible. If God is speaking to you in some specific way, this is a moment to respond. Don't just let a message resonate with you. Respond in obedience to what God is calling you to do. And so if you're a husband in this room, make sure you pray over your wives. Let's use this time as an opportunity for us to go after the heart of God and be a family together again. So let me pray and then we'll go into a time of communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you in Jesus' name that you've given us the gift of family. I thank you that the main core factor of what it means to be a member of your body is that we need people. So Father, I pray that our desperation for you would result in us needing people. I pray for the brokenhearted person in the room right now who feels you speaking to them in such a personal way that they would know that your hand is on their shoulder right now. God, I thank you for the miracles that you continue to do. I thank you that we have a city of people and cities of people who are ready to receive all that you send our way. God, I pray that we would embody the very words that we say at the end of every gathering, that we would go and we would be the church. But most of all, Jesus, we thank you for giving us a vision of what matters most. I pray that your vision for life would become ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take this time. We'll worship in just a moment.